power. Look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. An angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest and his associates had come, they called the council together, even all the senate, all the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. And then about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to, con not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching." and intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He's the one whom God exalted to the right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, that is the, the uh, chief priests and the members of the Sanhedrin, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis stood up, rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. and He was slain, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rode up and rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He, too, perished, and all those who followed him were scattered." And so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Or else you may even be found fighting against God. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then release them. Verse 41, notice carefully here. So they, that is the apostles, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. 
And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we read this account of your people taking a stand for Christ, our hearts are stirred. We are deeply humbled by such courage, such obedience. We thank you, Lord, that there are many people around the world who are taking their stand for Christ at great cost today. Help us as we pray, as we look into your word to realize, Lord, that we are brothers and sisters with those who are being who are suffering for the name of Christ. And Lord, help us to realize that we too are called to the same level of obedience. We pray that your gospel will impact all of us with why it is. For some reason, we can find joy even in suffering for Jesus because that's how wonderful Jesus really is to us in the gospel. Lord, just these things we pray till our hearts are full of joy like these early disciples we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I've read through this text, I can't help but conclude that spiritual warfare is real. Again, you have the kingdom of darkness that is opposed to the kingdom of light. And when the kingdom of Christ takes great strides in advancement, as we see in this account here in Acts 5, the kingdom of this world reacts with stronger resistance. And the church here in Acts 5 was a growing church. It was a thriving church. A church where multitudes, it says in verse 13, of men and women were constantly being added to the church. It is expanding beyond the confines of Jerusalem. We pick up there verse 16, which I didn't read this morning, talking about it's now traveling even beyond the realm of the city of Jerusalem. And so it's not surprising that when this is going on, this massive growth in the church there in Jerusalem, it's not surprising that the forces of darkness begin to push back against the church, against the church's leadership. And in chapter 5, we find these contrasting dynamics between two empires, two kingdoms, two armies, if you will. In the, early in the early chapters of Acts, the church is full of life, spiritual life, characterized by what? By growth, by godliness, by gospel proclamation. And those who oppose this infant church, as we find here in this account in Acts 5, these various religious leaders, they were committed to a dying, desperate religious system. And the Spirit of God is showing a contrast now of the people of God who are empowered by the Spirit to say and to do things that provided proof that their hearts truly had been and were being transformed by the gospel of life in Christ. And the religious leaders are given to us as a contrast to that. They are providing much evidence of people who operate in the realm of the flesh. Because we find here the works of the flesh opposing the advance of gospel-centered church of Jesus Christ. And so that's what I'd like to do this morning is to go back and forth between one and then contrast that with the other. So let's start off with our first contrast in this text. We find, first of all, selfish motives being contrasted with you could either say selfless motives or serving motives. Selfish motives versus selfless motives. 
Here in this wonderful account in Acts 5, we find this movement of God that is the equivalent, it's, it's very evident in the early chapters after Jesus ascended to heaven, it's clear that once the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, there was a dramatic movement of God underway in Jerusalem. God's people are not just talking about spiritual things, they are demonstrating a new way of living. They're sharing their material goods generously to the point where there's no one in need among them. They're sharing that extensively, that generously. They're also, we didn't read it this morning, but in verses 14 and 16, in that area, the, uh, for, sorry, 12 through 16, it's also evident that the people of God are involved in a ministry of trying to show Compassion for those who are hurting, those who are facing physical problems. We also realize that this church is not just, again, talking about spiritual or religious things. They are praying. They are seeking God earnestly in prayer. Chapter 4. And they are living out this kind of harmonious relationships of unity with each other. That is highly unusual. And the church there, as I said, is growing exponentially. And this small band of Jesus' followers is now mushroomed into this dynamic, diverse movement of disciples who are completely devoted to Jesus Christ no matter what. And one of the reasons that they have this passion and that you see the church growing and thriving so well is why? Is because they have just witnessed a dramatic, disciplining by God, of their membership, as two of their members were just recently laid into their tombs because they were lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to the leadership of the church, and they were involved in a form of hypocrisy in which God says that doesn't belong among the people of God. And so it's clear that the people now, having watched such a, a, uh, an event in the life of the church in the early part of chapter 5, these people now in the church, they are living in the fear of God. Verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11. These people are not living a life of compromise. They're not living a life of corrupt morals. They are clearly a people who are characterized by holiness. And the message that they're proclaiming, the message of grace and found in Jesus Christ, is also a message that says that grace bears the fruit of a life of holy living before God out of thankfulness and out of a desire to honor the Christ who died for them. Contrast that with the Jewish religious leaders, made up of some of which the Pharisees, which are the more liberal part of the leadership there, Sorry, the Pharisees, yeah, uh, sorry, were the fundamentalists. They were the very strict people who were following the law very carefully. The Sadducees were the liberal uh, division of the leadership there. They're not offering any kind of support for this movement at all. Their reaction revealed hearts of unbelief. And rather than welcoming the church, rather than welcoming these leaders, they are filled with hearts that are in the grip of their own selfish motives. Look at verse 17. The reaction that they had to this early dynamic church that is bringing so much blessing into that city of Jerusalem, that the reaction is what? Sinful jealousy. They resented the success and the expansion of the church. 
The apostles who were in charge of this expanding church were viewed as threats. Threats about the position of honor and privilege and power that these men had. It's not surprising then that religious people, apart from Jesus Christ, crave those things that they believe will give them their worth, that give them their value, that give them what they crave as acceptance before God and other people. They weren't ready to let those things go. And if you look at the book of James in chapter 3, which I would encourage you to do sometime later, you look at verses 14 on following, James is going to talk about what these men were like, the worldly wisdom that they're living by. A worldly wisdom that they're mostly concerned about themselves. And when you get past their outward persona of this spiritual spirituality that they somehow, you know, they, they, they look like they're playing this spiritual part and they talk maybe that language, this outward piety that they're putting on, but their hearts are full of arrogance and pride. And they're holding on to these positions of power with a tight fist because they believe and they're convinced they deserve these positions of power because look at who they were. And this contentiousness that they showed to these early Christians by these religious leaders is really rooted in their devotion to themselves more than anything. As a matter of fact, as you look at James chapter 3, verse 16, we read, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. When you find people whose hearts are filled with jealousy and selfish ambition, you got yourself a, a, a situation that's ripe for all kinds of conflict, mistreatment, and disrespect among people. What a contrast this is to the heart of Christ. To look at the hearts of these spiritual leaders versus the heart of Jesus Christ. Here is Christ who comes and what is his ambition? His ambition was to honor his Father in heaven. And what did he do? Well, he did nothing out of his own selfishness, out of his own vain conceit, we read in Philippians 2. In humility, Jesus regarded other people as more important than himself. He was on a mission to help rescue those who had rejected him. Jesus did not merely look out for his own personal interests. He looked out for the interests of others. And here his disciples are doing a similar kind of life in which they are now looking beyond themselves as they share the life of Christ with the members of their church, giving sacrificially, offering to help those who are physically suffering, praying for each other, unifying together as saying, what happens among us is more important than what happens just for me. It is true that the people of God were zealous for the honor of Jesus Christ, not zealous and jealous for their own positions of power and privilege. So the gospel of Christ calls us to follow Jesus and to follow him with serving or selfless motives. Giving to others, helping others, praying for others, joining with others with the kind of life of Christ that shows that we are not just living for me, me, me. That's an obvious contrast. There's another amazing contrast here in which we follow along these religious leaders with their jealous hearts. 
it led them to determine to maintain control. Maintain control over all these other leaders of the church. See, that's what happens when you want to be in control and it's all about you. You'll do whatever you can to make sure that people conform to what you think they should be doing. And so they misuse their authority by berating these apostles. Then they arrested them, they jailed them, and they forced them to conform to their own arbitrary rules and regulations. And so whenever you see sinful, selfish jealousy, it bears the fruit oftentimes of outward manipulation and outward attempts to control other people. If you look, look at verse 18 of Acts chapter 5, and notice that the text points out that the incarceration of these church leaders was done in a public jail, or they were jailed publicly. There's an attempt here to make a statement. These religious leaders were trying to demonstrate to the watching crowds, who really has the power? Who's in control here? Clearly it's not these apostles. We can lock them up quickly. We can put these godly men in prison, and it was done in such a way as to limit their influence. To lock them up behind bars was meant that these apostles and spiritually minded people would no longer be free to promote the claims of Christ any longer about the resurrection of the dead. And being arrested, they also were hoping to shut down this miraculous ministry which we read about in verses 12 to 16. You say, what kind of ministry is that? Well, I think that that ministry was a unique ministry of the first century apostles in which they were authorized by Christ with miraculous powers to heal the sick to prove that they were the true legitimate representatives of Jesus Christ and they could speak on his behalf and they acted on his behalf. What irony happens next? you got people jealous to hang on and have control. They arrested the, the uh, spiritual leaders. And then what happens next? God intervenes. And God sets these apostles free from the prison. And he chose to do it in such a way as to not draw any attention to the fact that they were being released. Apparently it was in the middle of the night. And God sent this angel there who liberates them from the prison and he tells these 12 apostles, listen here guys, I want you to do the exact opposite of what the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders are telling you. I want you to keep proclaiming in the temple courts the message of eternal life in Christ. So what did the men do? Morning comes, where do you find them? They're in the temple courts. And there they are doing what God told them to do, proclaiming Christ. Here the opposite, instead of trying to gain control and maintain control, here are the disciples who are submitting to God's ultimate authority. They refused to compromise. They obeyed the clear command of God. Now we know that Scripture says, if you look carefully and compare Scripture with Scripture, in Romans 13 and also in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible teaches that Christians are to submit to the authority over them that God has put in place. But 
there's an understanding here in this text that says we do so only up until the fact that if those human authorities command us to do what God forbids or forbids us to do what God commands, then we must obey God. That's the principle here. Why? Because God is the ultimate authority. Sometimes God chooses to overturn human authorities who misuse their authority. Sometimes God leaves human authorities perplexed and baffled as he did right here in Acts chapter 5. It reminds me of the text there in Hebrews chapter 11 in which we read along the long list of people who trusted God. There was that amazing text there in verses 32 to 35. It says, sometimes Christians with God's help, they escape the edge of the sword. Sometimes they quench the power of fire. Sometimes they put armies to flight. Sometimes they escape. That's what God does sometimes. But we also know there are other times when God does not choose to intervene and to spare his people the miseries of persecution and incarceration. The same text in Hebrews chapter 11 also says that other believers who also had faith were tortured. Others experienced chains and imprisonment. Others were sawn in two. Others were put to death by the sword. Does that imply that God was not in charge? No, no. In each situation, God is sovereignly in control, and those who follow him are submitting to that authority, being faithful to him, even if it means they're delivered or it means they actually lay down their life and die. No matter what the outcome God ordains, Jesus' disciples are commanded to obey him, to obey him. Now, I've put in your notes just a brief comment from one of the commentaries I consulted with Jay Adams, a biblical counselor, and he points out a very helpful reminder that when it comes to obedience, it's easy for us to just, well, maybe I will or won't do what God's telling me to do. And reminding us that obedience to God must never be conditional. We don't say to God, I'm going to obey you, God, if this or that happens, or if this doesn't happen, then I'll do it. But obedience is always to be complete. We're not to fudge and sort of do it halfway. Our obedience is to be in strict accordance with God's word. And we must be immediate, not waiting and postponing our obedience. I wonder if that's true in your life today. Is there something that God you know is for sure giving you his clear will that you're to be doing something and you are not doing what he's commanded you to do? Well, these disciples helped us understand that they are choosing to submit themselves under the authority of God and laying down their lives for Christ. That's what the gospel is meant to lead us to do in light of the grace and kindness God shows us in Christ. I want to work to our third contrast here, and I want to ask you a question. Did you notice in this account that there is nowhere any mention by the religious leaders? They sought their best to not mention the name of Jesus. Did you notice that? 
It's like the early censoring of, well, you're not supposed to talk about that. We don't want to hear that, so we're not going to mention this name of Jesus. Nor do we find any mention, which I find remarkable, no account here of them trying to find out how it was that these apostles escaped from the prison. Isn't that the real question that's begging some sort of answer or, or somebody to explain how this could possibly happen? No, that's glossed over. The only thing that they sought to avoid was being confronted with their sin. The sin that they knew they've already been confronted with, and that is that they had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And so we find here in verse 28, another contrast is the implication. They are seeking their best to avoid the implication of their disobedience before God. That's not surprising. Like most unbelievers, they were very defensive when they were confronted with their guilt and their sin. When they were involved in condemning and putting to death the innocent Son of God, when they insisted that He be killed by crucifixion under their insistence and their leadership, only a few months earlier, at the time, they did not have any concern about that position that they held and insistence. As a matter of fact, if you look at Matthew 27, verses 25, they were not bothered at all. They were not concerned at all with the fact of saying, listen, we have this man's blood on our hands. We don't care. We don't care. But what has changed? What has changed is that now, there are followers of Jesus Christ who are insisting that Jesus is no longer dead and that because he's been raised to life, therefore these religious leaders are facing the fact that they're going to be held accountable for what they chose to do. And so what do they say? Verse 28, do not bring this man's blood upon us. Unsafe people will try their best to avoid any accountability before a holy God. They will dismiss all sorts of notions of sin. They will teach and insist that hell no longer exists. They will teach and insist that God is love and that therefore He would never judge or hold people accountable for all their wrongdoing. But my friend, that is why <laughs> unsaved people need to hear the gospel, the gospel of grace. And that's why these apostles did not focus on their rights. They were not focusing on their mistreatment. And here's the contrast now. The apostles try their best to bear witness to Christ, to Jesus, and to his gospel. And so once again, they're repeating the gospel of grace. Here is Jesus, the holy, innocent one, who was put to death in utter shame and disgrace. On a cross, no less. So that we who ought to be filled with that shame might be free of that shame. It is God the Father who raised Jesus Christ up from the dead. 
and exalted him with a name that's above every other name and that Jesus is the ultimate ruler, they say in the gospel presentation here. He is the only redeemer. He's the only one who can bring us to God. It is Jesus who successfully paid the debt of our sin. He alone is Lord. He alone is Savior. And these men did not say to these religious leaders, listen guys, you need to try a little harder to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's no performance here at all in what they're urging them to do. They're saying Jesus is your only hope. Jesus is your only rescuer, your only redeemer. The gospel insists that only in Jesus Christ can true guilty sinners find forgiveness of sins. Praise God. And as they bore witness to Christ and his gospel again, I don't know if you noticed it, but in verse 32, Luke includes in his account the obvious element of importance that these guys, as they're giving the witness gospel one more time, thinking that, oh boy, we're speaking the truth and these guys are not loving it, that ultimately they realize it's the Spirit of God who must convict. It is the Spirit of God who must bear witness of Jesus Christ, and he must apply that witness to their lives. if you'll notice verse 42, they continued in their obedience to the Great Commission. They didn't just say it right then, but they continued after this encounter, which we'll talk about in a second. But look at verse 42. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, every day in the temple and from house to house. I wonder if some of us are people who back off in presenting the gospel at times because we've had people become offended by the gospel, and therefore we're a little gun-shy. I've been taking some time to read accounts of individuals who are alluded to in a book called Tortured for Christ, written by uh, Richard Vermbrand. I had the opportunity to hear this man speak when I was uh, in high school. I'll never forget it. A very unimpressive man who was rather elderly. He sat in a chair. He couldn't stand up to even speak. And he had been spent, I think it's like 17 years, being tortured, imprisoned in Romania during the time of the communist rule there. And he was released in the early 70s. And he talks about one particular uh, example of someone who was willing to suffer for the gospel and just to keep on going. He says, one of our workers was a, a young girl of the underground church. The communist police discovered that she secretly spread gospels and taught children about Christ. And they decided to arrest her, but to make the arrest more agonizing and as painful as they could, they decided to delay her arrest until a few weeks before she was to be married. And on her wedding day, the girl was dressed as a bride, the most wonderful, joyous day in a girl's life, and suddenly the door was pushed open and the secret police rush in. When the bride saw the secret police, she held out her arms toward them to be handcuffed, and they roughly put the manacles on her wrists. She looked toward her beloved, and then she kissed the chains and said, I thank my heavenly 
bridegroom, capital B. For this, the jewel he has presented to me on my marriage day. I thank him that I'm worthy to suffer for him. She was dragged off with weeping Christians and the weeping bridegroom left behind because they all knew what happens to young Christian girls at the hands of communist guards. After five years, she was released. A destroyed, broken woman looking 30 years older. She said it was the least that she could do because her bridegroom had waited for her. She said the least she could do for Christ, she said. These are the kinds of people who are following Christ under the communist reign. I don't know about you, when I read accounts like that, I just say, Lord, fill me with your spirit that I might know that kind of passionate concern for the lost. And that leads us now to our final section of contrast here. The fourth contrast brings about the angrily, those religious leaders were angrily continuing to fight against God. I came across a verse, uh, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 34. It says, Jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. The gospel is offensive to unbelievers. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, The message of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. It is a stumbling block. And when the religious leaders heard the good news that rebels of God can find forgiveness through Jesus Christ, his atoning death on the cross, how did they react? Did you notice that in the text? It says that they were cut to the heart. They were furious, cut to the quick, sorry. They were intending to slay them, it says. They're literally sawn through, it says. That's what that literal text means. They're enraged. And the same reaction happens in chapter 7, if you fast forward, when Stephen is giving his sermon, his message about Jesus. The same reaction occurs. Again, it's another reminder that the unbeliever's attitude toward God, Romans 8, 7, the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God. And here, with all of these, um, this angry response on the part of religious leaders, obviously it's not an anger that's a righteous indignation, not at all. It was a sinful hatred toward those who they felt had defied their authority. And they had now threatening the idols of the hearts of these men. And so these calming words by Gamaliel, who stands up, and by the way, he's a tutor of Saul, who eventually became Paul, the missionary, and this Gamaliel guy, we're, we're all wondering, where do we hear about this guy? And we think that it may have been Saul who understood and heard all this conversation going on. That's, that was Luke's source as to how he heard about this, this conversation that went on uh, within the, uh, the Sanhedrin. He says, listen, guys, let's calm down here. Let's not get out of hand. He knows that there are many people who have been claimed to be some sort of messianic leader and it, it just comes to nothing so just calm down however his advice i think didn't go far enough he didn't suggest that the resurrection of jesus to be further investigated 
he sort of glosses over that. He merely tries to prevent an overreaction on the part of the Sanhedrin. But these religious leaders still gave in to their anger. Did you notice that? They wanted, verse 36, they wanted this thing to come to nothing. They wanted this movement of Christians to be pushed off and to be nothing. But you'll notice in verse 40 that they couldn't just let them go, but they chose to flog them. Now this flogging is not just striking you on your knuckles. That's not a pleasant thing. It does hurt. But to flog someone is, involves the process of holding them with their, their arms outstretched, tied down, with their back exposed. And you take a whip made out of leather strips. And on the end of each leather strip is a piece of bone or metal that when it scrapes against and hits the back of the, the skin on your back, it cuts you open. It is a brutal, brutal form of punishment which Jesus himself underwent before he went to the cross. It does serious harm. And what a stunning reaction the apostles had. I'm convinced it is impossible to comprehend what they said and how they reacted apart from the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 41. These apostles who were treated in that way with this brutal form of flogging, rejoicing they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Here's the gospel that says that we who deserved to be treated with shame, that our shame is then exchanged for Jesus' glory. And Jesus' worthiness is exchanged for our shame. It's this kind of gospel that can produce this irrepressible joy by the Holy Spirit. Indeed, Jesus says we are to rejoice if we are receiving such treatment by those who reject Christ. I want to conclude with a story about Joseph's son, T-S-O-N is his name. You can look him up online if you want to read some things about him. Joseph's son. He actually spoke in our church uh, back in early 2000, I believe it was. I wished I'd spent more time talking to this gentleman. Um, he was here for a missions conference uh, with the Romanian Missionary Society. But back in the 1970s, he was the pastor of the largest Baptist church in Romania. And he published a document in which he laid out in very clear fashion uh, that the governmental leaders were not allowing the people of Romania to, to uh, enjoy the rights given to them by the Constitution to practice their faith. And so the, Roman, the Romanian authorities began this prolonged attempt to break him down with persecution and harassment. And so they indicted him for propaganda that endangers the security of the state. And so they took him and realized that this guy's not about to recant. He's not about to back down. They're not gonna, he's not going to silence him. So they took him and they consigned him to six months of interrogation, five days a week. He's brought into the, this office. Sometimes it lasted 10 hours a day. The interrogator and his, had his special tools. This is now um, son speaking. He says, they had arrogance, mockery, threats, guile, lies, 
and force. I went into my interrogation believing those were Satan's tools, and I should not use the weapons of my adversary. Instead, I had my master's tools, trust in God, love, joy, truth, self-sacrifice. On one occasion when Son was being beaten, he began screaming, mainly, he said, for effect, because he knew that his rights were being violated. He wanted other people to witness what was happening to him. And the next time he met the interrogator, he apologized, explained to the puzzled official that was, that, who had committed the beating that took place. It took place a week earlier during Holy Week. And therefore, he felt like an apology was appropriate. So Son said, well, sir, for a Christian, nothing is more beautiful than to suffer during the time when his Savior and Lord suffered. When you beat me, you did me great honor. I am sorry for shouting at you, Son said. I should have thanked you for the most beautiful gift you ever could have given me. Since Tuesday, I have been praying for you and your family. Later, when he was threatened with torture and death, Son had a ready response for his adversaries. Listen to this. Quote, Your supreme weapon, he says to them, is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. He says, you know that my sermons that are on tape have spread all over this country. If you kill me, these sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. God's ways are not our ways. The Church of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is a powerful, powerful force responding in joy in situations that, from the world's point of view, makes absolute no sense. But from Jesus' point of view, is merely walking in his steps and learning from him and celebrating the greatness of his love and grace for us. Let's pray. Lord, we are, again, deeply humbled by the wonders of those who suffer for the gospel and who pray for their enemies, who love their enemies. And yet we know, Lord, that's what our Savior did. How is it that he could love us? We who rejected him, we who rebelled against him, we who mocked him, we who have blasphemed him, we who have tried to be our own God and defy him. How could he love us so much? Lord, we are confounded by the wonders of the gospel once again. That this kind of love transforms hardened hearts. Lord, we thank you for the wonders of church history and for the ways in which your spirit has worked through your gospel to change people's lives. How we pray that that same powerful gospel will work in our own lives to give us a compassionate love for the lost, will give us holy boldness, selfless motives in our everyday life, will give us, Lord, a strong desire and a commitment to be obedient to Christ, even when it's inconvenient and causes us suffering. And Lord, fill us with joy 
if we can share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, Lord, give us that joy, we pray, as we think about and marvel at the wonders of our Savior, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Do these things, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen.